Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Strengthen Your Character Through Torah. My name is David Gottlieb. I have a PhD in the history of Judaism from the University of Chicago Divinity School, and I'm currently Director of Jewish Studies at the Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago. That's great. And I'm Modia Silva uh, in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a psychotherapist and an author and a longtime friend and study partner with David. We've been... And together, yeah, we together. are... Together, we are uh, using uh, the wisdom of the Jewish self-improvement discipline, the ethical discipline of Musar, uh, to explore the Torah and ways we can improve our character. Specifically, we're using uh, the wonderful uh, 18th century work, Cheshbon HaNefesh. I believe it's 18th century. It might be early 19th century. Uh, It's 19th century. Cheshbon HaNefesh by Rabbi Menachem Mendel Levin of Satanov, uh, one of the really early works uh, of Musar that explains how character trait by character trait, you can methodically go about improving your character. And Moja, what are we starting with today as we consider Parshat Noach, the second Parsha in the five books of Moses? Right, so we're we're looking at the trait of equanimity and um and i'll share in a moment what rabbi leffen has to say about equanimity how he sums it up but what we're going to do this is the second podcast in the series and it's this so this is the second episode looking at equanimity we're going to use a model of of working with one character trait for four weeks meaning four parshas four torah portions in a, row. in a row and so we will look at the torah portion through the lens of that particular character trait and then we move on to the next trait which is patience and then order and then decisiveness cleanliness humility and so on so rabbi leffin in his book lays out a model for working through character traits or working with character traits and then presents a list of 13 traits so our idea, our plan is if we work through one trait four times, four weeks, then over the course of year, a year, 52 weeks, we'll have actually covered all 13 traits in Rabbi Leffin's book. And all of the Parshiot of the Torah. And all of the Parshiot of the Torah. Yeah. And we'll be doubling up sometimes, and but we'll make it work. That's right. We'll make That's it right. work. And we'll even make it work through the book of Leviticus, somehow figuring out how all arcane priestly laws apply to or help strengthen our midot. Moji, I wanted to ask you something when we talked about Breshit and I neglected to, and that is, why do you think we start with equanimity? Oh, I think that's a great question because I I don't really know. So so I used to be in a Musavad, like a a Musav group with... um, a rabbi who would fly in from Israel and run our group every month. Every month he would fly in. And he was a student of Reb Shlomo Volbe, who was the last of the great Musar Rebbe's who survived the Second World War. Um, Reb Volbe must have passed away about 16 years ago now. Um, but Reb Volbe has an amazing Musar book called the Alei Shur, which is not translated into English, unfortunately. 
But mm. he finishes with equanimity. He thinks equanimity is the highest level that you could achieve. Um, right. And it also seems like it it would depend on other midot. Like, how are you supposed to maintain an even keel? Or as Rabbi Leffen says, how are you supposed to rise above events that are inconsequential if none of your other traits are sort of balanced? That seems like a really hard thing to do, isn't it? I think so. So what what gives me comfort is knowing that, firstly, I'm not perfect. And knowing that this is a cycle. And so I tackle something that might be really tough, equanimity. And I think maybe I should be waiting till the end of 30, of, and do, leave it as the 13th. But then I can also cycle right back to it next year or next month. Or So I, I, I do find it puzzling that Rabbi Leffin put it as the first. I've never read anywhere that suggests why, but um, yeah. But you and I are like we we push ourselves hard. So why wouldn't we yeah, pick? Exactly. Why, I mean, why I was wouldn't we? Say, we'll pick the hardest one first. I have and I and and on that score, I disagree with you when you say you're not perfect. I think you are. And that's why you're the perfect person to do this work. You've already perfected all your character traits. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, 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 wait! Before you go on, I I ask my client. I I have Israeli clients sometimes, and then I ask them for the Hebrew word for perfection. And they look at me for a while with a flat face, and then they smile and they go, "There isn't one." And so I think the I, my Hebrew is not great, but I think the word for perfection in Hebrew is something like perfectionist. In other words, it's an, it's an English word. There isn't a word for perfection, and so yeah, um, I think that I think that's what Musar really is all about: is acknowledging that we just keep striving to climb the ladder. Yeah, but maybe then we should also for our listeners to define exactly what equanimity is, right? In Hebrew, there are a couple of different words for it, menuchat nefesh or sort of repose of the soul, a kind of inner equipoise, so that you're not rocked by every wave of emotion that washes over you. But also another word for it, I think, is hishtavut, right? Which suggests uh, that everything sort of hits you the same way, shaveh, a similarity of reaction to all that comes at you. That's very hard to do. And um, I think menuchata nefesh for our purposes is a better way to think about it because <clears throat> if we're going to, as Rabbi Leffen says, rise above events that are inconsequential, good or bad, we have to sort of approach everything uh, as, as less consequential than our emotions would lead us to think that it is. Would you agree? Yeah, I I agree. It makes me think that um, this idea that we are not our thoughts, we're not our feelings, we're not. So things come at us, whether they're good or bad. And instead of me hooking into them and being devastated or elated by something, it's just me experiencing life that's coming at me. And, and they are in that sense, they are all equal because they're not me. So I, I would ask you something like, um, like think of something right now in your mind or notice what your emotion is right now. And then if you have something in your mind or you can sense an emotion, I would then ask, who is it that's doing the, the watching of the thought or who is it that's right. doing the sensing of the feeling? This is what is called sort of cultiva cultivating witness consciousness, right? It's that, <clears throat> excuse me, the essential self 
really is the witness to everything that goes on. The emotions are sort of evolutionarily adaptive responses to the environment. But is it is our innermost consciousness that makes us human. And that really simply witnesses everything that goes on. But maybe we should dive into the Torah portion and talk about Noah, the person and the events in the in the story of Noah. Because if we talk about rising above events that are inconsequential, good or bad, we have to agree that what happens to Noah is probably, by most definitions, not inconsequential, right? We're talking about God putting an end to most of life on Earth deliberately because the human being is inherently wicked. I begin with two questions. One is, why does everything, why do why does all living matter have to be subjected to punishment because of man's wicked ways? And second of all, how could God not know, especially after the events in Gan Eden in Parshat Breshit? How could God not know that the human being has flaws, will make choices based on appetites, will be imbalanced in favor of self-interest, and will be wicked to others if he or she determines that it's in their best interests to be wicked to others. In other words, the end of the world is consequential, right? What's Noah supposed to do? And what kind of grade does he get from you in terms of how he handles what the mission that God gives him? Oh, my gosh. You just asked a lot of stuff there. But um, but you said the end of the world is consequential. So maybe that statement has to be questioned. Like, is it consequential that I'm going to die? at some point or is it i'm just going to die at some point and that's just life that's just the process of life so i asked this question once to i asked this question to a lot of rabbis i said like how come how come all these animals in the world essentially got wiped out by god they didn't do anything wrong and no one had an answer until this one rabbi said i think you're asking the wrong question you're making an assumption that they did something wrong. And really, they were just put on earth to just be until they no longer were. And it wasn't a case of they got punished and therefore they were killed. It's just it's just life. Life includes death. Death is part of life. And so I think in that respect, you and I would say things are consequential, but at a philosophical level higher, it's all inconsequential. It just is. It's just it's just life that just moves and flows and becomes something else each moment. Interesting. You know, <clears throat> I love uh, Rabbi Shai Held's commentaries on, on the Parshiot. He has a two-volume set called The Heart of Torah, and he makes a very interesting comment um, about what appears uh, in terms of the relationship between the human and the divine in Noah. You know, before the flood, um, Genesis 6 says that the earth has become corrupt before God and filled with lawlessness. That's Breshit 6.11. And God basically gives up and he brings the flood. And then Noah does everything by the book, brings in all of the species by two, brings his family into the ark, um, survives the flood, lets the animals go, waits until the ground is dry, offers a sacrifice to God. And God says in uh, Genesis 8.21, he vows never again to destroy every living being. And he says it 
for precisely the same reason that he brought the flood. Never again will I doom the earth because of man, since the devisings of man's heart are evil from his youth. That's Brayshit A21. But that's exactly the reason he brought the flood to begin with, was that man was filled with lawlessness. So <clears throat> God is deciding to forgive the exact thing that made God bring the punishment to begin with. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm just going to introduce mine, which is that God is learning about humanity at the same time that humanity is learning about God. When we did our episode on the first Parsha, Parsha Breshit, we talked about how God lectures Cain, gives the first Musar lesson in human history. Sin crouches at the door, God says to Cain, but you are to master it. So God learns that human beings are vulnerable to this. And then God decides a few generations later, it's hopeless. The human project is hopeless. I'm going to get rid of humankind. Noah does what Noah must do. There's a whole argument about how righteous Moja, uh, Moja. Noah is compared to others. Sorry, that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> and, then, and then forgives humankind for the very thing that the punishment was given for. How? What are we to make of this? And I think this is an important ethical question. How are we to maintain equanimity if God is going to punish us for something and then forgive us for it? How do you explain that? Well, so my explanation of that, because you quoted chapter 8, verse 21, um, and God noted the expression of compliance. God said unto God's heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for the sake of people when the images formed by the heart of man are bad from their youth, bad from his youth. Um, excuse the pronoun stuff, but... No, that's fine. Yeah. This... I look at this on a, in a, at a psychological level, not a, oh, this is God um, setting things up and then punishing. But th this is what it says. In Hebrew, when it says, God said unto God's heart, it says el libo, not belibo. So if it said belibo, it would said God would go into the heart but it says, and and then you'd be a slave to your feelings. If if the heart represents the the um the container of your emotions, then if the Torah had have said bullybo, it would mean that you are now trapped in into your feelings. You're connected to them and pushed around by them. But it says elibo. God went into el like with the heart, and so I think that's the lesson is that when it says Hamas, like that um, that the world was like, what what do we say? The world is... Um, what, what filled was with lawlessness? Yeah, filled with lawlessness. I think it's really saying that people had become enslaved to their feelings, that, they'd been, that they were being pushed around by their desires, by their urges, and they had no control over their emotions. And therefore, it took them to lawlessness. And that God you made a really important. You've said a lot of important things. I just want to jump in for a second. One is, <clears throat> I think, you know, from my point of view, and I think you've made this clear from your point of view, too. 
we're not approaching this from a theological standpoint. So we, we are talking in a way about what God says, but we're really approaching all this because that's what the Torah says. But we're really approaching all this from a psychological standpoint. What is this telling us about how we are constructed psychologically and how can we use our psychological construction to its best advantage and how can we elevate ourselves? And what you're saying is that since the human being is B'Tselem Elohim made in the image of this God, that God too has, in this structure, um, the lesson is to look into your heart, but not be subsumed in it when something happens to you. This goes back to the witness con uh, consciousness that we talked about a few minutes earlier. The lesson that God learns is not to be led by emotions. Is that? I know that's a theological statement, but I think the point for us is we must not be ruled by emotions. And we see in this story that Noah is not ruled by emotions. He simply does exactly what God tells him to do. It appears that he does no more and no less. He loses it a little bit at the end, right? He's been through a lot. He builds a vineyard and he gets smashed. And then his sons do some bad things, which we can talk about them later. But the point is, that he, even with everything that he's going through, doesn't get subsumed in his emotions. He succeeds on that basis. I, I think so. And so the Musar question, I think, is how do you not get subsumed in your emotions? And coming right back to Rabbi Leffin's book, Teshbon Nefesh, he quotes a line from Mishle from Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 27, that a person's soul is the lamp of God, it seeks out all the hidden recesses. So I think that's our job is to go into the recesses of the heart and look for everything that in, that drives me in this world to either connect or to disconnect, to either let my ego rule over me or to um, submit to divine will. So if I can just read a tiny bit from equanimity, from the section on equanimity in Cheshbon HaNefesh. It mm -hmm. says, therefore, a person must strengthen themselves greatly to preserve this precious torch. And the torch is the torch referenced in Proverbs 20, 27, that a person's soul is the torch of God, to hold fast to it and protect it always. He says the torch is the trait of equanimity, which protects a person from many evils and stands by them at their time of need. Like maybe coming right back to what you asked at the beginning, maybe that's why equanimity is first, because you have to go inside and maybe there's a mess inside. Maybe you're really being driven by your desires and urges. And so you have to work to tame those first so that you can then work on the other character traits. So let's apply, <clears throat> excuse me, let's apply this to something that's going on right now as we're recording this. Um, it's a, a, a little more than 10 days after the attacks in Israel perpetrated by Hamas. And, <clears throat> uh, and a war has already begun in Gaza. There have been massive civilian and combatant deaths on both sides. Um, there's a great deal of tension um, all over the world because of this and other conflagrations. And just after the part that you read, 
Rabbi Leffen says there are people who become mentally unbalanced when they hear news, either good or bad, or when they experience unexpected pain or pleasure. Now, I will confess that in the last 10 days, I have been extremely unbalanced at times by the news coming out of Israel and Gaza. And I don't want to make this a political discussion, but the point is, the question I'm asking you is, are there times when it is a virtue to let oneself be upset, to deliberately lose one's equanimity, to not rise above, or is that a trap of self-indulgent emotional thinking? So I would wonder whether when you say, can you be upset and lose your equanimity, perhaps you're, you're upset and you don't lose your equanimity. So I, but I think that's a great point. Right. You're upset. And yeah. I feel this. I feel my pain. Or I feel my anger. I feel my sadness, whatever it is. And I can still maintain that midpoint, that balance. I can like I can stay grounded. Maybe that's the maybe that's the language in sort of modern terms. Right. Right. So just changing directions a little bit for a moment. I would just like to say that for me, one of the great um, psychological symbols of this entire story. And let's not forget that in this same Parsha, the Tower of Babel is built mm -hmm. and um, and confounded, which is something we should get to. But the Noah story is fascinating because each of our journeys individually is like Noah's journey. We are cast into the flood of the world containing all our different personality traits, like all the different species of the world, mm -hmm. and cast afloat with them. And this 40-day and 40-night journey, 40 days and 40 nights in the Torah, really generally just means a really long time. Uh -huh. This is the journey of self-development, and there comes the point when one must let go of all the traits that one has carefully shepherded. In other words, the symbolism on a psychological level of the story of Noah is how are we cast adrift on the sea of life and how we manage to both preserve and then liberate all the different aspects of ourselves so that we can return to being our full individual self. The menagerie on the ark is the menagerie inside of us. And the end of the flood is our mastery over ourselves. Please comment. <laughs> well, and and the ark itself is is our own selves sailing through the turbulent times of the world. Exactly. No, exactly right. It, yes. Yeah. So there's something, if I can find it, in chapter 7, verse 17, it says, and the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it was lifted. So Rashi says, it had sunk in the water 11 cubits, like a heavily laden ship, a part of which was, was sunk in the water. And then he goes on. So it sinks, like the ark sinks, and it comes back up. And I think we have to accept that that's our lot in life as well, is Rabbi Leffen says, rise above events that are inconsequential, meaning maybe sail on top of the water, but we're going to sink sometimes. And we have to know when we sink, not to panic, otherwise we'll drown. 
we have to know mm. how to get back up to the surface. Mm-hmm. And I, I have some ideas about, I know we talked last, la- last episode as well about how to manage ourselves, but I have some ideas that I think come out of this Parsha and out of equanimity. Um, one is not to underestimate the element of surprise. <clears throat> um, so Noah lives 950 years and he spends 120 years at least building this ark. So he's got a lot of patience because people are walking past him every day, laughing at him, right? It's like, what, what, right. The, heck you, what the heck are you doing? And then you figure a flood is going to come, but it doesn't come. This I always forgot this, but it doesn't come from the rain coming down first. It comes from the ma'ayanot. It comes from the springs of hot springs of water that come up from the ground. And that floods the world first before the rains come. And it's like, oh, that was a surprise. Right. And it's like, I, I can't be surprised like that. I can't underestimate, you know, that the world is going to go in ways that I don't think it's going to go. This also suggests to me, if we follow that symbolically, that the things that threaten our existence the most are within not without in other words it is not the external rains that fall from the heavens it's the springs within in other words the violent floods that exist within us that imperil us the most and it's interesting to me that the two great narratives in this portion have to do with one uh catastrophe of nature and one catastrophe of human striving. In other words, the catastrophe of nature is the flood. The catastrophe of human striving is building the tower, which is going to rule over the whole world and rise even up to the heavens. It is interesting that God seems threatened by this and that God decides only after the tower is built that the human being must be dispersed over the earth with a variety of different languages. What does this tell you about the trait of equanimity? What does this suggest to you? Um, Well, I don't know. I think it's very disturbing because in the Pasha, the natural disaster, the flood, takes up so much space. And then the Tower of Babel is just a few sentences. And then you move back on to naming all the descendants of the sons of Noah and his wife. I, right. I, I I like what you said, but the Torah doesn't seem to focus that much. And actually, if you look at commentaries, they don't seem to focus that much on the Tower of Babel either. Right. It takes what up you, what all you of... Yeah. Well, I'm curious. It what takes up all of, all of nine verses. And uh, it's interesting that what the human beings say when they're building the tower... This is uh, chapter 11, verse 4. Come, let us build let us build us a city and a tower with its top in the sky to make a name for ourselves. Else we shall be scattered over the world. And that is exactly what it says uh, in Hebrew. Uh, we will make a name for ourselves. And that is a hedge against being scattered over the world. And yet, the building of the tower is exactly what causes the human being to be scattered over the world. It seems, in a way, almost like 
eating uh, a more advanced version of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it is an effort to grab in a Promethean way what truly belongs to God. But the human being in grabbing or attempting to grab what belongs to God causes the exact thing that the human being is trying to prevent. And to me, this is about pride. This is about human pride and arrogance, building a name for oneself. I mean, the Jewish sages say that one should strive assiduously not to be concerned with honor because being concerned with honor causes an attempt to ride, rise to inappropriate heights. And that will cause a scattering, not just of humanity, but a scattering of the self. What uh, Rabbi Zev Wolf of Zhitomir called Pizur Hanefesh, a scattering of the soul. Hmm. So the thing that's interesting to me is everything that happens globally in Torah can be true also individually and psychologically. If right. we become too prideful, we lose our equanimity. We become scattered. We can't yeah. speak the same internal language to ourselves. That's what this says to me. I think that's brilliant. I, I because there's a there's a line in Pekei Avot in Ethics of the Fathers that says three things remove you from the world jealousy, desire, and the pursuit of honor. And so if you, so the flood, the flood removes the world and the tower of Babel removes the world as well. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so so one is, one is, one is, uh, sorry, one is ecological and the second one is psychological. Exactly. The the first is ecological. The second is psychological. Moja, what do you think, this Parsha encourages us to do. In other, in other words, if there were going to be a personal week-long exercise on equanimity to come out of this Parsha, mm-hmm. maybe you and I can brainstorm for a second about what that would be. Okay. I always put you on the spot. I love doing that. Okay. So can I? Well, no, it's I good. Go first? So I'm on a, I don't have a straight, uh, like a immediate answer, but it makes me think about the dimension it it takes a lot of time telling you about the dimensions of the arc how measured they are um where is it chapter 6 verse 15 and so a mida a character trait is called a mida in hebrew which is a measure and so the question is if we're going to talk in detail about how to measure ourselves then you're right i think we need at the end of each of these episodes we need like okay and what's the homework what are we going to do to make it practical what, and in this case, it's what's our path to equanimity. Or, right. <clears throat> I wonder if one thing that we could look at is what is our path? What, Assuming that we lose it periodically, lose our equanimity, which I do all the time, then can I, can I pick someone, whether it's you, whether it's my wife, a kid, a friend, could I pick someone to help support me in getting back to that state of equanimity and can i go tell them like and be specific about what i'm working on this week and what what i need help mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. so um we've said this before well you and i have said this in in chapter 8 verse 9 it says but the dove did not find a resting place for the sole of her foot and she returned unto him meaning noah to the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth, 
And Noah, he put forth his hand and took her and brought her unto him into the ark. She needed support. The dove was doing her best, flying around, and then couldn't get back into the ark by herself. So she slipped up in her path and someone reached out. So the question would be, can we find someone who could reach out and help us when we slip? Or could we make maybe um, like a chevruta with someone? And it's like, and if I see you slip, I'll reach out and support you and help bring you back to equanimity. I love that. I think that's extremely practical and it uh, de-emphasizes the individual um, uh, and builds in a communal context, which I think is always really important in this, in this work. That's why we have Chevruta, right? Study partners. That's why you and I have been study partners for most of 18 years. Uh, and it's why um, we look for a minion, right? Because a critical mass of human beings increases the power and the focus of what we're doing. Yeah. Of what can we're I, doing. I think. I, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So I have a second one as well. Yeah. So, um, so after the flood, God set a rainbow as a as a as a memorial as a well and as a, a commitment to not bring uh, to not do this again basically so there's a question about was the rainbow created for that purpose and the commentators say no like the rainbow always existed like after a big rain a rainbow came out but it was designated at this time so it wasn't created at the time, but it was designated at the time for this. So I was thinking, how do you how, can we use something to designate our desire for equanimity? Uh, and I was thinking, what about a bracelet? So you put a bracelet on your hand every morning on your wrist, and that is now a designation that you're focused on equanimity. So you look at it, you go, oh yeah. Right, equanimity. And then maybe if you slip, you switch the bracelet from one wrist to the other. And then you go, oh, okay, but I've still got it. And I know that this is my intention for the week is to keep bringing myself back to a state of equanimity. I love that. I'm not big on bracelets, but I love that. <laughs> um, this, yeah. this is why in Jewish tradition, um, people wear tzitzit, right? Is because mm -hmm. it's a mnemonic device. It's why we put on tefillin, phylacteries, right? It's another mnemonic device. The Shema asks us to always keep this information at the forefront of our consciousness. And, um, and so some physical thing like that is really important. I think it's also important um, <clears throat> to... Uh, develop some sort of or to use some sort of affirmation. In the last episode, when we talked about Breshit, we talked about saying what Rabbi Leffen says, um, rise above events that are inconsequential, either good or bad, for they are not worth disturbing your equanimity. Uh, if we are to rise above, what would be a good affirmation or saying or mantra or or verse uh that we could say to ourselves and i i sort of thought uh that um uh what uh what god says when 
God promises never to destroy this earth, uh, destroy the earth again, what God says at the end of chapter 8 is, so long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. In other words, the cycles of life will continue until the world no longer endures. That means the cycles of our emotions um, will continue. And we have to build in the awareness of witness consciousness to keep ourselves from being rocked to and fro. So I sort of like the idea um, of using uh, something that suggests how long-lasting everything is and how puny our emotions are uh -huh. uh, in comparison. There are a lot of verses in Mishle and Proverbs that are useful for this. And I have found, it, when thinking of equanimity, even though this is not exactly fitting, to think something like, to everything there is a season. I was thinking of that too. Yeah, to everything there is a season. Um, I was also thinking just simply... This too shall pass, whether it's good this or too bad. Shall pass. Whether yeah. it's good or bad. Yeah, this too shall pass. A time-honored and fantastic um, uh, aphorism that works both when something is wonderful mm -hmm. and when something is terrible. Right, right. Okay, well, nice. So we have an affirmation. Yeah. We have a designated reminder whether it's yeah. a bracelet or something else, and reaching out to support someone or asking for support. Yes. Nice. So I'm hoping that in the week to come, you will support me uh, as my emotions swing wildly to and fro, and I dedicate myself to doing the same for you uh, and for all of us. Uh, and again, uh, in our next episode, we will go on to Parshat Lech Lecha, one of the richest and deepest partio, uh, I think, in the entire book of uh, of the of the Hebrew Bible. Beautiful, awesome, and maybe next maybe next episode we'll look at Rabbi Leffin's antidote to when you do fall off the fall off the path for equanimity. Yes. Let's do that because by the time we meet next, I will have fallen off the path. <laughs> and got back on and fallen off and got back on and... exactly yeah so thank you everyone for listening to strengthen your character through torah i'm david gottlieb and i'm modia silva and we look forward to seeing you next time